Well, friends, it's good to be with you on this Lord's Day. As we just sang in that wonderful hymn, the church blesses one holy name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the church partakes of one holy food. You may think, what food do we partake of? It's the Word of God that we come to consider now as we open His Word uh, in this act of preaching. And so if you have your copy of God's Word, please take it and turn with me to Luke chapter 18, where the Lord has spread a feast for us this morning. Luke chapter 18, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 8 in Luke chapter 18. And if you would follow along with me as we, as we read, this is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 1, Luke chapter 18. And Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge says, the unrighteous judge. And will not God give justice to His elect who cry to Him day and night? Will He delay long over them? I tell you, God will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good in Christ. Amen. Let's take a moment now to pray and to ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of His Word. Father, please help us now as we consider the inspired, inerrant, infallible truth of Your Word. We ask for the Holy Spirit's illumination that we would believe, Father, and obey the things that You have revealed in the Scriptures we pray, Father, for the Holy Spirit's protection that You would keep me from error and that You would grant Your church discernment. Father, And we also pray for the Holy Spirit's gift of joy that as we consider the Word of God, we would be stunned anew by the fact that we have in front of us the very words of life, the very Word of God Himself. We ask for Your help this morning, God. And we pray this in Christ's name, confident that You hear us. Amen. I wonder how many of us have come to church this morning feeling the weight of unanswered prayer. Surely, even in a congregation our size, unanswered prayers are never far from our mind. Perhaps you have prayed for the salvation of a loved one for many years and still they do not believe. Maybe you seek change for a difficult marriage or a chronic illness that doesn't relent. It could be a good thing that you desire that for some reason God has not seen fit to provide. How many of us come to church this morning feeling the weight of unanswered prayer? When we talk about unanswered prayer, we're really talking about waiting upon the Lord, walking by faith, 
And waiting upon the Lord is the sum of the Christian life. As Christians, we are people in waiting. We wait for the day when we will see things with God's perspective and not through a glass dimly. We wait to put off this old sinful flesh once and for all and put on our glorified bodies. We wait for the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As Christians, we are people in waiting. So in that sense, unanswered prayer is like the Christian life in miniature. Unanswered prayer is a small version of the big picture. We're waiting upon the Lord. Of course, waiting is not easy, isn't it? Walking by sight is much easier than walking by faith. Having every prayer answered the way we want, when we want, seems much preferable to waiting upon the Lord. We don't like to wait. So how do we wait well? That's the question that I want us to answer this morning. How, as Christians, do we wait well? How can we persevere, even in prayer, when the wait seems long and the prayers go unanswered? How do we wait well? Our passage this morning deals with precisely this question. Today is a good example of why churches ought to preach through books of the Bible, not skipping any part, because in doing so, you come across jewels of encouragement that you might otherwise miss. Our passage today is like that. Here we find a jewel of encouragement from the Lord Jesus, a passage that addresses that question, how do we wait well? As you heard in the reading, this passage is a parable about prayer. It goes by various names, the parable of the unjust judge, the parable of the nagging widow, that's not very nice. I prefer to simply call it a parable of perseverance. A parable of perseverance. It certainly focuses on prayer, but at the same time, it encompasses more than prayer. It ends up being a parable about persevering in the faith, of which prayer plays a central part. So how do we wait well? Well, Jesus is going to teach us the answer, at least in part, this morning in this text. Before we get to Jesus' answer, though, there's a couple of big picture points that we ought to note about this parable that will help us understand what Jesus says. To begin with, we ought to note the context of the parable. We ought to note the context. It follows immediately after a passage dealing with the return of Christ. Look back at the end of Luke 17 where Jesus described His second coming. Immediately following that is this passage on prayer. Please note that connection, friends. The Lord will return, but we are waiting for that glorious day. How do we wait? In between His first and second coming, we wait with persistent prayer. That's the context. The context of the parable connects with the church's life in between the first and second coming of the Lord. We wait with prayer. Secondly, we ought to note the nature of the parable. This is always important when you deal with a parable. What kind of parable is it? This is a lesser to greater parable. It's a lesser to greater parable. Jesus uses a lesser figure, an unjust judge, in order to highlight a greater figure, the perfectly just God. In that sense, the parable builds to this one grand climactic application. If an unjust judge hears persistent pleas, then how much more will God hear His children? That's the point of the parable in summary form. 
But let's not settle for a summary. I said just a moment ago, this is a jewel of encouragement. It is. Let's not settle for a summary. Let's consider the details. And we're going to do so this morning under that heading of persistent prayer. If you like to take notes, we're going to think about persistent prayer from four different perspectives today in hopes of helping us wait well as Christians. Four different perspectives on persistent prayer. We start in verse 1 with the need for persistent prayer. The need for persistent prayer. As is often the case in Luke, we're given the purpose of the parable up front in the very first verse. Notice again how the passage begins. And Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So, why does Jesus tell this parable? It's very clear. So that His disciples will always pray. Now, the idea here is not that believers are praying literally every minute of every day. That's an unrealistic approach to life. We're certainly called to pray as Christians, but we're also called to do other things like work and raise our children and serve other people. We could go on and on. There are numerous callings in the Christian life. So the point of verse 1 is not that we should all retreat to a monastery and simply pray every minute of every day. Rather, the point is that prayer should mark every season of the Christian life. Prayer should mark every season of the Christian life. We should never be too busy to pray. We should never be so comfortable in our Christianity that we think, you know what, I can just take a break from praying for now because everything's going smooth. You do that, friends, and it will be going not smooth soon after that. Whatever the season, we are to be people marked by prayer. It's the basic application of the parable. We ought always to pray. So before we go any further, brothers and sisters, let me just ask you the question that we ought to ask ourselves. How would you characterize your life of prayer? Are you an always praying person, a sometimes praying person, or just not really a praying person? How would you characterize your life of prayer? And let's just get this out of the way right up front. None of us are constant in prayer as we ought to be. None of us has arrived to the point where we don't need verse 1. Each of us has room to grow. We all need Jesus' exhortation. And as one of your pastors, I want to stress to you how vital this is for your spiritual health and well-being, that you ought always to pray. There's a lot of talk in our day about the rising persecution that the church faces and will face in our country, you can read innumerable articles on the internet by people who probably should not be writing articles on how you should get ready to face the storm of persecution that's coming in our country. And all of that is true. That's true. It's going to be difficult. We just read it in 2 Thessalonians 2. The man of lawlessness will come. That's true. But do you know what will best prepare you for what's coming? Prayer. Quiet, humble prayer. Prayer where your right hand doesn't know what your left hand is doing. Prayer will prepare you to face what is to come. Constant, steadfast, persistent prayer. In fact, you look it up in the New Testament, in Paul's letters, whenever he talks about Christians being watchful for the end, he almost always connects it with what? Prayer. Being watchful in it. 
So where do you need to grow? And how do you plan to do so? We ought always to be constant in prayer. How are you praying? As we continue on in verse 1, you'll notice that there's more to Jesus' purpose. Not only is the parable designed to encourage our constant prayer, but it's also designed to combat losing heart. We ought always to pray, Luke says, and not lose heart. Losing heart is the same as giving up, throwing in the towel, concluding that prayer is pointless. That's what Jesus fights against in this parable. He doesn't want His church to give up on prayer. And friends, this is quite timely from the Lord. The natural tendency in the Christian life is to be discouraged in prayer. That's the natural tendency. Personally, we have numerous prayers that appear to go unanswered. And corporately, we're still waiting for the Lord Jesus to return. And so it's natural to experience some discouragement. It's natural to think, prayer isn't doing anything. Why do I bother doing this? Have you ever thought that? Yes, me too. You may have thought that this week. You may have thought that this morning. And if so then this parable is for you. Look how relevant God's Word is. We're just preaching through Luke, and here we have what we need for our souls. This parable is for you. In His kindness, Jesus meets you in your discouragement. He doesn't stand above you and shake His finger and wag His head. He meets you in the discouragement. And He gives you what you need to fight back against that natural tendency to be discouraged. You see the kindness of Christ, friends, of all the attributes that don't get enough play about Jesus, kindness may be at the top of the list. How kind He is. He does not leave us where we are. He does not say, be constant in prayer and then just expect us to figure the rest of it out. He commands and then He gives the grace that we need to obey His command. That's the kindness of the Lord. What a merciful Savior. How kind of God to give us His Word where Christ does not stand above us, but meets us in the discouragement and equips us with what we need to follow Him. So if you're discouraged by prayer, good news, this parable is for you. We ought to be encouraged from the very start. The need for persistent prayer is great. Praise God, Christ meets us with encouragement. Our second perspective begins to describe that encouragement. In verses 2 to 6, we see the example of persistent prayer. The example of persistent prayer. This is the parable proper, and it has two characters. The first character is a judge who is utterly unfit for his role. Notice verse 2. Jesus said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. Now, according to the Old Testament, judges were responsible to look out for the least of these. In fact, you could argue that a judge's foundational job was to ensure that people in power not use their power in sinful ways. By the way, that's still the standard for a judge. In other words, to be a faithful judge, you had to fear God more than man. You had to have compassion towards other people, particularly towards the weak. This judge, however, has neither of those things. He does not fear God, which is the same as saying he ignores the great commandment. He does not love the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
And he does not respect others, which is the same as saying he ignores the second great commandment. He does not love his neighbor as himself. This is a man with authority who lacks the character to use that authority rightly. And friends, that's always a recipe for disaster. But the unjust judge is not the only character. There's also a persistent widow. And she's the one that sets the example. Notice how Jesus describes her, verse 3. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to the judge and saying, give me justice against my adversary. The parable doesn't tell us what her situation is, but it's assumed that she is in the right. Her case deserves to be heard. What's more, widows were precisely the kind of people that judges were commanded to protect. Widows are often vulnerable, unable to provide for themselves, very prone to be taken advantage of. So this is exactly the kind of situation where a just judge is needed. But despite that situation, the judge ignores her. Keeps putting her off. At least for a time. Suddenly, however, everything changes. Her persistence pays off and the unjust judge responds to her. Notice verses 4 and 5. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. What's well, a remarkable turnaround, isn't it? The widow causes enough trouble, that's literally what it says, she causes enough trouble that the judge relents. He's tired of her coming and bothering him. In fact, he's concerned that things could get worse if she keeps coming. In the last phrase of verse 5, I think this is pretty humorous. The last phrase of verse 5, the judge is literally saying that he's afraid the widow will come and give him a black eye. That she's going to come and punch him. He keeps refusing. She keeps asking. She won't quit. So out of self-preservation, the unjust judge responds. He gives the widow justice. And so, with the parable complete, Jesus calls His disciples to listen. Look at verse 6. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. Now, remember the nature of the parable. This is a lesser to greater parable. That means the point is not that God will answer us if only we bother Him enough. That would put God on the same level as the unrighteous judge, which is both blasphemous and contrary to the nature of the parable. Rather, the point is to recognize the wisdom of persisting in prayer. If even an unrighteous judge responds to persistence, then how much more will our God and Father respond to the persistent prayers of His children? The answer is much more. Much more. Do you see the connection? The judge has to have his arm twisted. Our God is ready and willing to answer. The judge has no commitment to justice. Our God is the definition of justice. The judge has no compassion, even towards someone in need like this widow. Our God is full of compassion and abounding in steadfast love. The judge is cold and indifferent. Our God is so attentive to your life and mine that He collects all of our tears in a bottle, Psalm 57. 
The point of the parable is not keep bothering God until He answers you. No, the point of the parable is to show you how exceedingly willing God is to hear your prayer. If even an unrighteous judge responds to persistence, how much more will God? Much more. Friends, this is the key to not losing heart in prayer. This is the key to not giving up. It is to remember the One to whom we pray. To remember His character, remember His greatness, remember His kindness and compassion and mercy and grace and wisdom and providence and goodness. When God looms large in our minds, discouragement is quick to flee from our hearts. When God stands exalted in our affections, fear and apathy are driven out by the light of His glory. Listen, this is why the church's teaching on prayer down through the ages has so often begun with the character of God. Where should you start in prayer? You should start with God. Right thinking about God leads to persistence in prayer. When we think of God rightly, then we find ourselves praying persistently. Some of you may have learned the way to pray the way that I learned to pray with that acronym ACTS. Do you remember that? Anybody else remember that acronym ACTS? A-C-T-S? Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. That's how I learned to pray. Someone taught me that. By the way, you have to learn how to pray. It doesn't always come natural. So, just a word to moms and dads with children. One of the things that you can do is teach your children to pray using this simple acronym. ACTS. Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication. Few things have been more helpful in my life to teach me how to labor in prayer. And i got a long ways to go. Where does the acronym begin? With the letter A. Adoration. It begins with praising God for who He is. That's not a formality, friends. That's not a formality. If I could stress to you one thing today, it would be this. Beginning your prayers with adoration of God is not a formality. It's actually a means of grace that helps you persist in prayer. Surprisingly, this is what the unjust judge is teaching us. He's telling us to recognize afresh the unspeakable kindness and compassion of our God. To put it in simple terms, when we pray, we have a much better advocate than the widow. She had an unrighteous judge. We have a good heavenly Father. And therefore, we ought to pray with persistence as well. This leads naturally into the third perspective on persistent prayer. We looked at the need for persistent prayer and the example of persistent prayer. In verse 7, we find the promise of persistent prayer. The promise. What are the promises that protect us against losing heart? It's natural to lose heart. What promises protect us? That's what Jesus deals with in verse 7. There are two promises that deserve our attention. First of all, there's the promise of Christ's return. Notice the language of verse 7. And will not God give justice to His elect who cry to Him day and night? Will He delay long over them? 
Of course, the answer is that God will not delay. God doesn't know what the word delay is. He has no delays. God will not delay. He will give justice to His people because He is Himself perfectly just. Again, it's the character of God on display. God will not fail to give justice because He cannot be less than who He is. He cannot be less than just. Therefore, just to remind you, every wrong against God's people will be made right. Every pain and every heartache will be repaid with comfort. Every injustice will be punished and rectified. Every persecution will be answered with glory for the saint and judgment for the wicked. Nothing, not one single minute that God's people have endured in the life of faith will be left unaccounted for. Everything will be made right. Because God cannot be less than who He is, He will surely give His people justice. When will this occur? That's the question you ought to be asking. When? That sounds great. When? When will this great reckoning come? Should we expect this justice in our lifetime? Maybe. Perhaps. It may be that God gives justice to the believer on some level in this life. It may be. But the point of verse 7, brothers and sisters, is to lift our eyes from the present in order to see the end. The point of verse 7 is to get us to stop thinking about today only in terms of today and think about today in light of the last day. The justice in view in verse 7 is the justice of the second coming when Christ returns. Again, remember the context of the passage. I put those things at the beginning of the sermon on purpose. Remember the context. This parable comes immediately after Jesus' teaching on the second coming in chapter 17. That connection is key. One of the great promises of the church is that the Lord Jesus will return. And when He does, He will right every wrong. He will bring justice. And that promise of Christ returning, that last day, keeps us persistent in prayer. It helps us to not lose heart and to keep praying. Even when it seems that God has not answered, we continue to pray. Why? Because we know that Christ is coming soon. And when He does, everything will be made right. The promise of the second coming helps us persist in prayer and not lose heart. There's a second promise in verse 7. And it's the promise of God's grace. Now you might ask, where's the reference to grace in verse 7? That's a good question. I'll admit that the word grace is not present in verse 7. But the truth is there. Notice how Jesus identifies believers in verse 7. Notice what He calls them. And will not God give justice to His elect. Now, this is the only time in Luke's Gospel that disciples are referred to as God's elect. It's the only time. So the choice here is purposeful and significant. Let's do some theological reasoning together just for a moment so that we can see the grace. What is election? Here's how our statement of faith defines it. This is the governing statement of our church. This is what our 
confession of faith says about election. Election is God's eternal choice of some persons unto everlasting life, not because of foreseen merit or foreseen faith in them, but because of His mere mercy in Christ. So, in short, what is election? It is the act of God's saving grace undertaken by God. Which means the elect are those who have received God's grace. Not because they earned it, not because they deserve it, but simply because God chose to give it. The elect are the recipients of God's grace. That's what verse 7 is saying. Now, let's keep doing with our theological reasoning here. Let's think, what does election have to do with prayer? How in the world does election help us persist in prayer? It's a parable about prayer. What's election have to do with prayer? The answer, friends, is that God's grace cannot fail. That's what has to do with prayer. The elect can never be unelected. The elect live every day with the promise of Philippians 1.6 ringing in your ears. There are a handful of Bible verses that you ought to have memorized and in the holster of your pocket that you can pull out quickly to fend off Satan's fiery darts. And Philippians 1.6 needs to be one of them. He who began a good work in you, election, grace, he who began a good work in you will do what? Bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. The elect can never be unelected. Grace cannot fail. Armed with that grace, encouraged by that grace, what do we do? We pray. And we keep praying. We persist in prayer because we know that regardless of how long prayer seems to go unanswered, our Heavenly Father has nothing but grace for us. Even if our prayers seem to go unanswered for our entire lives, we still have the confidence that God is for us and not against us. Why? Because of His grace, which cannot fail. You see it? You see the reasoning here? It grieves me greatly that so many churches and so many Christians make the doctrine of election something to argue about or something to crow about. Both of those things grieve me. The point of this doctrine is not a matter of debate. It's an anchor of the soul. Election is not speculative. It's pastoral. Election is not something you put on the placard outside and say, look how much better we are than other churches. Election is something that drives you to your knees to pray. Do you see it? So shout it from the rooftops all that you want. God's grace is unconditional. Amen? He gives grace to whomever He wills. Shout it! And then when you get done shouting it, live it. And you live it by prayer. Humble, persistent, quiet, where your right hand doesn't know what your left hand is doing. Prayer. The way we live as the elect of God is to pray without losing heart. Just a general rule of thumb, friends. If your belief in the grace of God and the unconditional election of God doesn't make you more humble, you don't understand what you're talking about. And the way you demonstrate humility as a recipient of God's grace is by praying and not losing heart. That's the perspective of verse 7. Because God's grace cannot fail, we know that He will hear us 
We know that He will answer us. If not in this life, then certainly in the day of Christ Jesus and armed with those promises, the return of Christ, the unfailing grace of God, armed with those promises, we do the thing that no one else can make sense of. We pray and we keep praying. That's perspective number three. Man, I love verse seven. The final perspective on persistent prayer comes in the last verse, verse eight. The effect of persistent prayer. The need, the example, the promise. Now verse 8, the effect of persistent prayer. Jesus begins this last verse by answering His own question from verse 7. Notice the first line there in verse 8. I tell you, God will give justice to His elect speedily. Okay. This is a good reminder that the life of faith requires that we see the world, including our lives, from God's perspective and not from our own. Jesus says that God will give justice to His people speedily. Just to remind you, He said this 2,000 years ago. So was Jesus mistaken? I mean, 2,000 years is a long time. So perhaps we need to adjust verse 8, right? Wrong. It's not God's perspective that needs adjusting. It's our perspective that needs to be adjusted. A thousand years is as one day with the Lord, Psalm 90 teaches us. So when Jesus says that justice will come speedily, we have to think on God's timetable and not our own timetable. When the final day comes, the justice of God will be revealed suddenly. Soon, Jesus says, God will vindicate His people. Soon, as in it's the next event in the scope of redemptive history. Soon, God will vindicate His people and that truth is only received by faith. You only receive it by faith. In fact, the call to faith is where Jesus ends the text. Notice the final line of verse 8. Jesus asks another rhetorical question. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man, that's Jesus, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? Now, Jesus is not saying that He expects to find His people without faith when He comes. Remember, He just called them the elect in verse 7. So He's not going to turn around and question whether or not they're going to have faith in verse 8. Rather, Jesus uses the question to prompt His disciples and us to think. It's a question because it stirs you to think and to ask yourself, am I walking by faith in the promises of God? Am I persevering in the faith, holding fast to the gospel? Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? And you hear that and you go, yes, will He find faith? Am I walking by faith? You see, it's it's less of a question and more of an exhortation in the form of a question. Jesus is pushing us to set our eyes on the last day when our blessed hope will be revealed and when God's justice will make all things right and new. So it comes as a question, but it works as an exhortation. The way we live for the last day is to persevere in the faith. Of course, that raises a closing question, a very important one. How do we persevere in the faith? Or as we said it earlier, how do we wait well? How do we persevere in the faith? If Jesus exhorts us to perseverance, how do we take this exhortation to heart? Well, there are many ways that you could answer that. Because God has given us many means of grace. 
But in the context of this passage, there is one clear means of perseverance. In this text, there is one clear application that helps us continue trusting in the Lord. What is this one clear application? It's the subject of the parable. Persistent prayer. That's the clear application. One way that God keeps His elect to the end is through prayer that does not lose heart. Friends, you see the incredible kindness of Christ in the symmetry of this passage. The call in verse 1 to pray always is the answer to Jesus' question in verse 8. We ought to always pray and not lose heart. Persistent prayer is the God-designed means of perseverance in the faith. Why is this the case? How does prayer keep us in the faith? The answer is that prayer continually resets our perspective. Prayer continually resets our perspective. Think about it this way. By nature, we tend to focus on today. Prayer resets our focus to the last day. By nature, we tend to believe that our circumstances are ultimate. Prayer reminds us that God is ultimate. By nature, we are prone to wander. Prayer anchors us in the truth. By nature, we tend to think first of ourselves. Prayer teaches us to think first of God and also of our neighbor. By nature, we are prone to judge God by our standards, by our timetable. Prayer resets us to God's timetable, the timetable of eternity. We could go on and on. We could go on and on. But I hope you see the point. Prayer resets the way we see the world. And we begin to see it from God's perspective. Friends, this is the wisdom and kindness of Christ in this brief parable. When Jesus comes back, He's going to be looking for genuine faith. How do we remain in that genuine faith? Through the very thing Jesus teaches us to do in this passage, through prayer that doesn't lose heart. Through persistent prayer, He keeps us. So let's close where we began. Let's close with the weight of unanswered prayer. I wonder how many of us have come to church today with the weight of unanswered prayer. The reality is there are no unanswered prayers. At least according to God's perspective and God's timetable. He answers every prayer with perfect wisdom. Though His answers are not always clear to us. And they may not always be what we would want. And we may not be able to put all of the pieces together. But friends, that's why Jesus gives us this parable. That's why the Lord teaches us in this text so that we will not lose heart and give up on prayer. So that we will persist. So that we will wait upon the Lord. And in waiting upon Him in prayer, we will find our strength renewed. Listen, there's a day coming when there will be no more weight of unanswered prayer. On that day, when Christ returns, we will not see through a glass dimly. Indeed, we will not even see or feel those unanswered prayers. We will only see Christ. 
And in seeing Christ, we will know for all eternity and forevermore that our God and Father is for us and not against us. And so armed with that hope, we pray and we do not lose heart. Amen? Come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are not as strong as we think we are. We are not nearly as robust in the faith as we perceive ourselves to be. We fancy ourselves, Father, as a mighty fortress that can stand firm and the first little gust of wind leaves our faith in shambles so often. We are not as strong as we ought to be. But we praise You, God, that You have given us the means of strength and the means of grace in Your Word. We thank You that when the Lord Jesus commands us, He also gives what He commands. He gives the grace to follow where He commands us to go. And so we ask God that You would help us to not lose heart, but to pray always. We pray, Father, that the promise of Christ's return and the promise of Your unfailing grace would sustain us. We pray, Lord, that as we come to You in the act of prayer, we would do so thinking more of who You have revealed Yourself to be and less of how we feel You ought to be. Help us, God. Help us to persist in prayer and to, in doing so, give You the glory that You deserve. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.